So I think a lot of people still don't know too, but it is what it is. So Juwan, hello? Is Juwan here? I think it's Hello, can you hear me? Y- yeah. 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 Um Craig, thanks for being here, man. This is this is fucking huge. I mean for me personally. I mean um my friend is on the is on the team with us here, Maker. I wanted to go into the space. I asked him, guys, how can I learn? He sent me the link, uh, your Google Doc link, and that was it. I think I've watched all your videos. I mean, I think maybe at least twice during the bull market, then when the bear run started, I started watching again just to remind myself some things that I might be missing. So for me, this is, this is, uh, this is very rich. So thank you, man. Thank you for being here. That's very, that's very kind. Very kind of you. Yeah, I'm just a you know normal dude. Been lazy with the YouTube channel because you know the market was my focus. Um, pe- people use really nice and very flattering language like mentor this that. I, I don't really see myself as any of that. You know when you play like video games and there are people who like give you quests along the way or kind of point you in the right direction. I think at most, at best case scenario, I may be that kind of non-playable character. Um, but you know if it helps someone, that's that's good. Yeah, that is, and we've kind of kind of modeled ourselves after you. Believe that or not, I mean, as far as this crew is concerned, the Crypto Africa, Round of Africa thing, it's always been about oh, we we learned those things for free. I mean, we learned from people like Craig, from people like Emperor, so we got these things for free. So now if we're actually teaching others, we do it for free too because that is how we got it. So now we have no interest in charging anyone for to educate them or say do technical analysis, all those things. So yeah, you might not consider yourself any of those things, but the fact that we mentor us, I mean we um we we shape ourselves after your after your influence. I mean that that is big one. That is big enough. So you you might be everything you did not want to uh, consider yourself as being. I appreciate it guys. Yeah, passing it down to you know, if you learn something helping the one uh, that comes after you, it's you know, what what more can you do? Yeah, I mean, one of the favorite things which is said, which I still love about us, is I don't want to uh, start those paid groups, those uh, paid crypto groups and stuff. So that is, that is really funny, the first time you said it. So uh, we have um, Juwan here, who's FTX business development guy for FTX Africa. No, FTX Juwan, can you uh, hear me? country manager. I mean, uh, maybe. Oh, yeah, African manager. I think uh, the FTX platform, as far as FTX is concerned. Um, I believe uh, you can hear me. The, yeah. So I want to. I think you've been with FTX Africa since it basically since FTX launched. So can you tell us how your journey with FTX started, and what you guys are doing at FTX Africa? Um, Groovy, I, I kind of missed some of the things you said. Do you mind repeating? Yeah, I said you've literally been with FTS Africa since since FTX launched. So can you just tell us about your journey with FTX and what you guys are really doing? All right, then. Um, so um, I, I started working on FTX um, sometimes around May, May last year. Um, FTX was just one year. So, um, you know, pretty much a startup. And then we thought, okay, it, it will really be nice if... Well, we started marketing operations in in Africa, Nigeria to be specific. So, you know, um, I was working with a startup company before. I've been in a blockchain space for about five years now, and most of those times, um, I've been working with exchanges from now and then. So, you know, with my experience, I was able to gather um, some community leaders in the crypto space, and then um, 
most of our um, you find out that FT has actually started um, PR and marketing you know, earlier this year. But the first two years was strictly you know, organic, organic marketing, and you know, which um, that was what we did mostly. Oh, okay, cool. So now my next question is to Craig. Um, a lot of new traders or people who got into crypto recently look up to Craig, huge communities. So my question would be, what were your initial challenges when you started trading? Gosh, yeah, that's a big one. Um, I think one of the main ones that's probably applicable to a lot of people was I thought that more was less. So like more information is always better than less information. So be it reading news sources, adding indicators, using different data feeds, tools I didn't understand. I just kept thinking that more kind of volume of information would lead to better trading outcomes. Uh, and kind of the, the opposite has been true in my experience. It's, it's much better to drill down one or two things in terms of trade identification, execution, and so on that you know inside out, like mastering the basics, uh, and then spending years refining those rather than looking for like short-term crutches um, for your trading system. So, you know, I've, I've, when I, I mostly trade like what, I mean, I look at futures and derivatives data, but when it comes to like trade execution, identification, it's um, more or less like market structure levels or horizontal levels. It sounds funny, right? It's just a line on the chart, but I've been focused on that for like five years now. And every month, every couple months, uh, there's still a new insight, a new kind of thing I can learn, a new, a new amendment or alteration to a setup. Uh, that comes from that very basic thing. So uh, I think for, for newer traders, uh, it's very tempting to just dive in super deep and add all the indicators, all the data, order books, you know, just, there's so much wealth of free data and tools available in crypto now. Uh, I guess a decent place to start is to trim the fat, narrow it down, and get good at using the one or two tools that you like, uh, as opposed to compensating for your lack of understanding by just adding more and more. I think that's a decent place to start okay that, that's great so something i want to know is this i want to know your rituals before you get into trade you launch your trading view app what do you do next yeah so like you, that's a good you just just give us like an inside look into your routine like what do you do next yeah cool um so i want to get a sense of like what i've missed or where the market's at if we're talking like in the morning after waking up so that will normally involve looking through twitter looking through telegram groups uh, and obviously looking at the price chart in the very short term to see whether there's been some big move or development I've missed. Uh, then otherwise, in terms of ritual, uh, I will open up um, BYBT, which has a lot of kind of futures data about funding rates, liquidations, and all of that type of stuff. Uh, I kind of want to get a sense of how futures are trading relative to spots. That's kind of the uh, data-driven bit of my day. Uh, I'll also do the similar thing on ViewBase, you know, just to get a different look at funding rates across different exchanges. Uh, and then once I get a sense of uh, any news that's happened overnight, um, where the futures are trading and funding and all those other, you know, bits of data that I use to get a broader view of the market, uh, then it'll be looking at my actual charts and levels. Um, I don't really, I, I try to update the actual areas I want to trade at least on a weekly basis. I feel like people sometimes just marry the lines they draw and they feel the need to like fit the market to whatever random crap they've got on their chart. Of course, it should be the, the other way around. Uh, so for me, I'll kind of calibrate myself based on where the market is relative to my medium and higher time frame levels. 
Uh, and normally, already in the days before that, I'll have an idea that, you know, is this a setup I can buy? Is this a setup I can sell? Am I neutral and looking for, like, more evidence of direction at the level and so on and so forth? Uh, and then it's as simple as if the market wants to trade at an area I'll find attractive, I'll step in. Uh, and if the market isn't in an area that I find attractive, then I'll do nothing. And that's something which at this point takes just a handful of minutes to kind of browse through derivatives data, look at my chart and see if it requires further attention from me in terms of getting ready to execute. Uh, and if there's nothing for me to do, then there's nothing for me to do. You know, I'll either wait or just research some stuff or be more productive elsewhere in the crypto space. Uh, but I think in terms of like good habits to have for a ritual, it shouldn't take you super, super long to identify whether there's a possible setup forming for you. If you're sat there like looking at a million different time frames you didn't normally look at, adding different tools like trying to force a trade, uh, that'll usually lead to unfavorable outcomes. Most of the time, if you know your system well, uh, a quick scan should be enough to tell you whether you've got business to do. That's that's great outstanding response. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, sweet. it offers a lot of insight, man. Thanks. Yeah, let me, let me I, I see in. a lot of things I can incorporate. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, I actually want us to like, talk more because I know we might not uh, get here to the end of the episode. So I want to just, like, talk more macro. I'm sure you saw the news about the uh, SEC and regulation in uh, the U.S. I mean, as far as we're concerned, we are Nigerians. So we might think, oh, that's, I mean, what are the implications of that for the crypto space in itself? Because it doesn't seem like um, they're interested in regulating the space. I mean, from my own uh, point of view, from where I stand, it feels like they are more interested in like shutting down the space because um, by the definition of uh, brokerage itself, I mean, it extends all the way to say liquidity providers. You want these guys to, uh, I don't know, KYC. I mean, even down to like proof of work, uh, miners and stake and all this. So you want all these guys to, like, I mean, by what I regularly uh, understand by the regulation, you want all these guys to KYC their customers. That is impossible. So if they can't comply, then what is the future of the space? Um, yeah, I'm happy to jump in, sure, on that question. Uh, I think what's being referred to is the uh, infrastructure bill that's being proposed and I think currently voted on in the US. Uh, and the definition of broker is very kind of broad and casts a very wide net. And it would mean, you know, as you mentioned, sort of miners, node operators, and kind of everyone gets captured and is forced to KYC um, and anyone trading basically through them. Now, in very recent developments, it seems like um, the crypto lobby, although crypto lobbying is very ineffective, which is a whole nother topic, but the crypto lobby is kind of pushing towards amendments to the existing language to specifically exclude um, crypto companies, including miners and software developers, from that kind of tax reporting obligation. That makes sense. I think it's like unnecessarily um, cumbersome. But I think the broader theme is that the US has never been a particularly good place to trade crypto. I mean, even from accessing derivatives, um, we saw Uniswap front end kind of limit access to some contracts. Uh, it, it's just not the, not even the state of New York gets treated like Iraq, basically, if you're trying to sign up to some of these exchanges. There's never been uh, a particularly good place uh, to do business, even on kind of offshore venues because of that regulatory crackdown. Uh, I, I don't think this bill is as scary as it seems. I, I would be surprised if it went through uh, without like without being amended to exclude crypto companies. Uh, I think what's more interesting is two things. First is um, the language adopted by Gary Gensler and then the CFTC kind of snapping back and saying we have also have jurisdiction when it comes to exchanges. So there's a bit of an internal tug of war 
uh, between regu- you know, regulatory agencies in the US and who has jurisdictions over what. Um, they've got pretty strong views about most tokens being securities. So, you know, we'll see the implications of that. There's like already an existing framework in the US under the Howey test to decide whether these things are securities or not. Um, and then the second point, which I pay attention to, is even if you have kind of regulatory news and headlines coming out, um, what does the market think of it, right? Does, is the market calling bluff? Is the market calling bullshit? Is it, how, how is it pricing in this news? A lot of the time, how the market reacts to news is much more important than the news itself, right? And we've seen around 37, 38K Bitcoin, we had Binance crackdown on withdrawals, Binance crackdown on leverage, um, USDT headlines, a bunch of really crappy sounding stuff came out, you know, Elizabeth Warren shouting from the rooftops, uh, and the market didn't really seem to care that much. So from like a trading point of view, now that I've given like a little spiel on macro, uh, if you if you think it's as the case, like if your approach is, you know, bad news, I'll short, good news, I'll buy, that may work if the market conditions just kind of happen to be on your side. That's not how I approach it. I just kind of see it as information and then look for divergence. So if there's bad news and the market keeps going up or absorbs it, that's bullish, right? Uh, and if there's... And the opposite is true as well, right? So if, if news stops having an impact or is ignored, that that's generally where you see signal uh, versus noise. That's my approach, at least. Yeah, that's 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 sweet. Um, another question. I I think this was the question I pushed you with is the fact that I I have a community, and most of these guys trade small accounts. I know in crypto, there's this um, a lot of people come in with the wrong impression that you're going to probably be a millionaire overnight if you trade Bitcoin or whatever. And these guys end up like blowing up their accounts, which means they they um they they are the ones that come on Twitter and say your crypto is a scam. So I just wanted to kind of like talk about um trading psychology as far as uh, trading small accounts is concerned. I don't know if you've ever been there, but if you are or did they and do that uh that's part of your trading. Yeah sure. Um I guess the first thing which goes without saying is you should never risk your ability to take risk because if you haven't got that, you haven't got shit, right? If that means going all in or losing the majority of your balance, even if it's small, if you risk your ability to actually make bets in the market, uh, you know, that's it. It's over. And it's just a matter of time until you blow up. Um, and your whatever run up or profits you had on the way up, you know, that won't matter if, if you lose your chips and you can't bet. Um, you mentioned like the different psychology of entrance in the market. Uh, this probably isn't going to sound great, but you know, if you just want to make money, probably the best way to do so is to get a job, right? Literally get a consistent income stream. Um, now, you know, the world isn't always an easy place. Like, you know, Eurozone youth unemployment figures suck. Um, I'm no expert on the Nigerian economy, but I think youth unemployment is like a sometimes a problem there as well from from some recent data. So, you know, if you've got a job at the very least, keep it. Um, but if you want to just make money, like getting a job will probably be net better for you than trying to like do it via trading crypto, right? And even if you do want to do it via crypto, and if you're listening to this, there's a very good chance that you will not outperform uh, a buy and hold strategy over several years. That's just like inherently probabilistically unlikely. Uh, so where does that leave us, right? In terms of trading psychology? Um, well, I would say when it comes to small accounts, it's a tough place to start because successful traders trade because they want to and because they see something they want to take advantage of, not because they need to, right? So 
it's a mindset difference of focusing on the process, i.e. asking yourself, is this a good trade or a good decision to make, as opposed to being focused on the outcome, like did I make or lose money? You can make money and have a crappy trading process that's going to lose you money in the medium to long term, right? So just pure, a, pure, a purely results-based approach to trading, which is what your focus is going to be if you have a small account, uh, probably won't yield the best results. Uh, and another point about small accounts is like I would always start defensively, which means don't lose your capital, no matter how small you might think it is, don't lose it to stupid stuff. That means high leverage trades with no edge, Ponzi schemes, scams, loans, Twitter impersonators telling you they'll send you to double, double your money Mac, you know, pump and dump groups, all of that stuff. Like if, if you want to quote unquote, make it, whatever that means, or grow your account, you can at least start by not losing it to stupid bets that are not worth taking, right? Or bets with no reward in the first place. Um, now, when it comes to actually taking advantage of or kind of breaking out, as you mentioned, of trading a smaller account, one of the main benefits of my mind is the flexibility, which means getting in and out of positions with minimal market impact, uh, which carries over best the kind of lower mid cap uh, trading assets, in my opinion, although trading high caps is good too, because the technicals generally work better. One thing I wish I knew when I was a, had a small trading balance in 2017, you know, I was just a uni student in London, so you know, wasn't exactly swimming in swimming in cash by any means. Not for like the textbook prices we had back then. Uh, but knowing where you are on the risk curve is really, really important. So for example, if someone's trading $1 million or $10 million, they can be super happy catching just a few percentage moves in spot trading Bitcoin dollar, risking just a couple percent, because uh, it, it's very scalable and that definitely pays the bills, right? And your risk appetite is different when you've got more, more to protect. Now, obviously, if you apply that model uh, to trading your smaller account, you, you, you kind of hit a wall after a bit, right? Let's say you've got like a $1,000 account that's not necessarily small, depending on where you are, but just to make the numbers easy, you risk 3% of that, and your risk for the trade is whatever, $30, right? And you get a two-to-one risk-to-reward ratio, or yeah, reward to two reward for one risk trade. So you get two R out of it, and you've made, you know, 60 bucks. Uh, at a certain point, the numbers start to matter because... And that's without fees, right? Because the strategy just don't, the same strategies don't scale across all account sizes. So then the question is, okay, if I'm not going to do the one to 2% risk on a few percentage moves on Bitcoin dollar, where should I look? Uh, in my opinion, it makes sense to focus on stuff that the big guys can't do with as much size or where, or where there's an even playing field. So what does that mean? Uh, generally, low to mid caps, um, you know, NFTs, DeFi, new governance tokens, there's like a lot of bleeding edge type of crypto where the playing field is is much uh much more even and a kind of basic trade example uh would be if you've got bitcoin dollar at support and we know that altcoins are generally correlated with bitcoin uh, instead of buying bitcoin dollar at support if you have a thesis that the market's going to go up you position in low caps or mid caps instead you know the risk of if you're wrong you'll lose more but you also get a much bigger um higher beta to Bitcoin bounce if your thesis is correct. And I mean, the brute fact is that the super conservative sort of risk management, one to two percent risk scalping is very unlikely to break you out of where you are with a small account. Uh, in my opinion, it just makes sense to wait for something with a real edge or asymmetry and take a big bet on it. And that can mean patience, that can mean maybe days or weeks without taking uh, anything significant. But I, I, I feel, every, you know, this is, I, funny enough, it works for both really big accounts and really small accounts, right? So the funds I talk to, like CMS, et cetera, you know, they, they can trade for a whole year and they can 
nail down their entire year's profit to like three or four really good positions which are responsible for most of their winners. I think that the same logic is actually applicable on the other other side of the curve to small accounts, whereby, yeah, you might do the little scalping, playing bounces, etc., but the real um, sort of multiplier is going to come from those massively asymmetric opportunities where you can cram in like double digit risk and be nimble with your size because you're a smaller account. And those are the trades that are going to make a difference. It's not a matter of, you know, I'll make 20 bucks today, 20 bucks tomorrow, and then I'll make two, 3% a day and then I'll be Jeff Bezos in a year. I really don't think that type of compounding grind realistically in the real world uh, is, is how you quote unquote make it. In textbooks, sure, all the compounding day by day, etc. But realistically, anyone, I think most people will tell you the kind of breakout um, areas or parts in time for the equity curve came from those high conviction bets, which are responsible for like a disproportionate amount of their P&L. And it's worth bearing in mind, there's a lot of money in crypto. Airdrops, you can, you know, airdrops, which go to really significant sums, um, you can get rewarded in tokens for like community or telegram management, marketing, copywriting, technical jobs, if you've got that kind of proficiency. And for that, you just kind of just need to have your ear on the ground, as in join those discords, join the telegrams, help people out. And, you know, crypto has a way of um, rewarding people who genuinely participate in the token governance, etc. as long as it's not like a total piece of shit scam. Um, so that's kind of all I've got for small account type of stuff. I, I hope that kind of answered the question. Yeah, thanks very much, Craig. Uh, something I would like to ask is this, because personally, it's one of the things I struggled with like a few months ago. How do you stop yourself from forcing a trade? Because I think I fell into these and I almost kind of blew up my account in March earlier in the year. So, but I had to take a lot of losses for me to actually learn from that. So how do you stop yourself from forcing a trade? Gosh, yeah. I mean, the really boring answer to some extent is discipline. Um, just, just don't fucking do it. <laughs> but then often forcing trades is a symptom of something else, right? Maybe it's like an absence of process. You don't actually have a trading process, so you don't know what a good trade looks like, so you always end up in bad trades. So the solution there could mean some form of even a rough system or trading checklist before um, taking an entry. Uh, it could also just mean you know, a lack of balance in your life. Like if the market's doing nothing, but all you do is sit there and try to scalp and you don't have any kind of hobbies or things to research, etc. Uh, a lot of the time being able to diversify what you do with your time is, is, is also important. Um, but yeah, force, forcing trades is usually a symptom of something missing. Uh, a decent bet on that something is if you don't know what a good trade looks like. Uh, then the, the likelihood of you taking bad trades goes up a lot. So some, e even like a loose framework system, defining what a trading setup actually is. So then you can simply look at your piece of paper and compare it to what you're seeing, right? If it's X, you trade it, and anything which is not X, uh, you don't trade. So I think ultimately it comes down to structure, uh, but also you know having some stuff you can do outside the market when you don't have a setup to trade is, is also important because otherwise boredom is, is a real, real demon. Uh, and is often responsible for that type of behavior as well. Okay, great. Uh, thanks very much. I'll, act, I'll let the other speakers ask a few questions before I ask the next one. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, um, I actually see a few, uh, couple of people that will look up to you. So I don't know if you guys up to, would like to add anything. I mean, Kelly is on the, he's on the stream. So that is fucking unbelievable. So if you'd like to say something, just, I don't know, type an emoji or something and we'll add you. 
the chat. So, yeah, um, another question which I have is uh, Bitcoin dominance. Is it ever going to end? Is that a thing? Would there be a point where the, do you foresee a point where the tokens, the utility tokens can uh, disregard whatever uh, the Bitcoin trend is? So I, I think it's ending to some extent if you look at crypto market structure, uh, and there's some clear evidence of it. So back in the day, if you wanted to onboard into crypto, what you would do is you would buy Bitcoin, uh, and then if you wanted to, you would trade altcoins by trading your Bitcoin for those altcoins. And so back in you know in Bitrex, Poloniex, etc., you would be trading alt BTC pairs, so altcoins against Bitcoin, uh, and your thesis would have to be. Uh, I'm going to stack more Bitcoin by taking these uh, alt BTC trades. Now it's quite different. You can onboard quite easily with just USD without buying Bitcoin in the first place. Um, the, the futures market has also changed, so you can just trade altcoin futures or alt USD, very liquid spot markets without going into Bitcoin uh, in the first place. Um, BitMEX dominance. Uh, which are Bitcoin margined futures contracts. BitMEX dominance is like faded into relevance, and most people are trading trading linear futures now uh, as opposed to inverse futures. So to a large extent, the, the, you know, the, it's a different type of um, dominance. But now you can definitely onboard and trade and have a crypto experience without like using Bitcoin per se or in a much kind of less dominant role. But the second point about correlations is is much more uh, on the money. Um, I think a lot of market participants got trapped by the idea of a decoupling and whether that was via positioning in ETH while Bitcoin was going sideways or assuming that DeFi cash flows are like independent of the market and just being long DeFi while Bitcoin looked rough. Uh, I just think if, if we review the evidence, I don't see a very strong case right now for that type of decoupling or an absence of dominance. And I think if anything, the, the onus is on those people to prove that you can have essentially secular high time frame trends in altcoins and or DeFi or something else um, in a different direction to Bitcoin. So I, I, I would love a market like that because it just mean maybe we can focus more on the fundamentals and whatever. Although, of course, there, there are benefits in a tightly correlated market, right? Like we mentioned one of them earlier when it comes to setups. If you think Bitcoin is at support and you want to take some more risk, you buy altcoins instead. And if you're right on Bitcoin, you're just kind of more right on altcoins because they bounce harder. So it's not all the, the correlations aren't all bad news. Um, I think crypto market structure is, has shifted away from Bitcoin. Uh, but in terms of correlations for the time being, I would need to see some pretty compelling evidence uh, for like a decoupling. Because if anything, what the what the crash taught us was that at the end of the day, if you need margin for your Bitcoin positions, you, you'll fucking sell everything into the ground uh, to do it. And yeah, that ended pretty badly for uh, decoupling or decorrelation bets. So, uh, the jury's out at the very least. Um, yes, it does. Uh, I don't want to ask any questions for, for Craig. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can yeah, you guys hear me? Yeah. Oh, Paul, how you doing? Hold on. So, um, CryptoCred, um, amazing one. Um, for me, uh, one of your standout, um, videos when I got across your, you know, your solutions was the aspect where you spoke about institutional traders and how they affected the market. And, uh, it's one of the things that I and the gang have always been trying to, you know, sort out on how to, you know, pick our trades when it comes to, you know, approaching support or resistance levels. So I wanted to hear your opinion, you know, what, how, what's, how much impact do these institutional traders have in the market, especially in this current period we are currently? Yeah, I really think the, the overarching premise of the 
video there is don't be like an idiot with your stop placement and don't give easy fills for your counterparty if you don't have to. Um, I, I think it's kind of a, you know, you can reverse engineer it to some extent, which is you know, if you know there are a lot of breakout traders slash breakout system, breakout trading systems in the market, uh, they won't always be right. And so it's about, it's about being prepared for the in eventuality. Well, if those systems are wrong, what would that look like? And how would the unwind uh, affect either your position or maybe you can even trade um, the other side of it? So I don't think it's necessarily sort of, oh, that, you know, there are big guys around pushing the market for X, Y, Z purpose. It's, it's, not, it's not so simple or linear. I mean, there are certain pockets in the market where you can see that one exchange is kind of dominant in shorter term price movement. Uh, but I don't think it's this uh, overarching thread of that there is X entity and they do Y to achieve Z result. You know, the market's really fucking complex and people do stuff with a bunch of different instruments for different reasons across different timeframes. Um, I think the main premise of, of, of that lesson uh, was to just to be aware of like stop placement and what may happen if you have an obvious looking breakdown which fails or an obvious looking breakout uh, which fails as well. So from a, it's from a market microstructure point of view, you know, what does it look like when shorts are forced to close or long, longs are forced to close, liquidations and so on? That kind of stuff is important, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily extrapolate it to, um, I, I wouldn't personify that behavior in terms of its XYZ entity out there for a specific goal, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally. Amazing work. Cool. Oh, hi, Craig. Um, I have a question. I uh, in your opinion, what do you think? The, do you think blockchain is truly the dis disruptor of fintech, or should we expect um, other disruptors? You know, some people some people say, or right now people claim that the internet after 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 um, um, w, the World Wide Web, blockchain is truly the next fundamental innovation. So, do you think we will see other disruptors, or um, this is this truly the end of um, fintech? from DeFi, decentralized exchanges, and all actually become mainstream? Or are we expecting um, more disruptors? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty shitty person to ask this, to be completely honest. Um, my, my own personal unqualified uh, speculation is that things just change way too quickly to develop strong opinions in crypto. Like the whole DeFi use case, uh, you know, decentralized exchanges went from being largely unusable slash unpopular and then you look at uniswap now and dydx and one inch and you know macho and all these other aggregators uh, it seems like an integral and even obvious part of crypto now you've got amms and paradigm developing amendments to amms all that type of stuff and that's a change that took place within like two years and this is something that was essentially written off understandably you know ether delta and you know nomads listening you could speak to how some of the early dexes worked or didn't you know crypto bridge all of that type of stuff and and that was like a full turnaround within just a within just a couple of years so i think it's clear that those making the argument that there's no use case for blockchain crypto whatever that's probably becoming a very untenable position um as for kind of future trends just because things change so quickly i probably i would probably avoid having strong positions as to whether this is it um but i think I've been pleasantly surprised by the kind of real innovation in the last couple of years compared to, you know, the ICO bubble, for example. So I think I, th I think the signs are good. 
Oh, thank you. Hi, Trent. Quick question from my end. Um, so we've seen um, Bitcoin dominance, um, especially with, with alts. Um, and my friends and I here are having that debate about whether um, we think there's there's an increased adoption of of, of stable coins for transactions than Bitcoin at the moment. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. As I mentioned earlier, the onboarding process has completely shifted from having to buy Bitcoin and then trade alt BTC pairs, so on and so forth. And you know, even even in the BitMEX days where you'd have Bitcoin margin futures or inverse futures, whatever, um, now you can onboard pretty easily with stable coins. You can trade altcoin USD, sort of stablecoin margined linear futures. Uh, you can you can very much have a non-Bitcoin experience in crypto until of course the correlations kick in and kick your ass at which point you realize you can't really ignore bitcoin um, or, or ignore it to your own peril uh, but i think in terms of as you mentioned adoption and yeah you, you can pretty much you can get quite a bitcoin free experience in crypto now certainly compared to you know 2017 uh, and DeFi is a really good example of this as well um I kind of view it from a more of a trading point of view, and it's quite obvious. You're just looking at Binance alt BTC versus alt USD volumes. It's like not even close. Um, so I suppose th this, the answer to your question is yes. I think stablecoin adoption has ch shifted market structure quite fundamentally over the last couple of years. Yeah, thanks, Craig. There's something I would like to ask you. Um, I, I listened to an episode of one of your interviews with Sam, SBF. So I think it was you and Don Alt asking Sam. You've always been the one who asked the question. So now you're the one who's going to answer the question. So I want to ask you the same exact question you asked um, Sam about three, four months ago. What are your thoughts on on-chain data? Do you think they're just noise or it's pretty credible and you can make good decisions based off of on-chain data? Funny, you know, Will... Um one of my friends, Will, who does, uh, who, who pretty much one of the main on-chain guys is listening now. I'm sure he could speak better than I can uh, if he wants to. But I think I basically share his conclusion, um, which is it's still relatively new in terms of figuring out how, how to calculate this data, how to use it, and coming to reasonable conclusions about its predictive power. I think the successful uses of it have been in medium to longer term trends as opposed to short term like oh someone sent bitcoin to coinbase dump it or someone sent you know bitcoin out of coinbase clearly it's like a big boy buying etc i think short term i lean much more towards noise uh, medium to long term i think it's probably here to stay and with time it'll get refined into better more actionable um signals uh, it, it's just like any other tool, right? If it's used inappropriately by people who don't know the appropriate context or what they're doing, uh, you'll think it's crap. If you look at competent practitioners, uh, especially given it's still a relatively new thing, uh, I imagine it's going to stick around and uh, be popular among the people who actually know how to build a system out of it and have more data to backtest at that point, refine their tools and so on and so forth. So short term, like for kind of pump dump signal type of stuff, uh, probably pure noise. Um, I think kind of derivatives data, if you want the short-term stuff, is magnitudes better than on-chain data, like looking at futures, options, and so on. Uh, but medium to longer term, you can start to, I think, build a pretty cohesive picture of the market if you want to look at on-chain data. Um, I just want to ask you a quick question. Um, is it Will Clemente? Or would you, yeah, that's who's the one. Will? So, okay. I'd like him to speak to us about that, just to clear, clear it up. 
since he's really the data expert we have here. Okay, I got him. Um, okay, while we wait for Will to join us, uh, we also have um, Juwan from FTX. So, Juwan, I see you guys have been going to, to university campuses to promote FTX. Why did you decide to make that move? Or why did FTX Africa decide to make that move? Hello? I believe he's having... Yeah, I think John's issues with this network. That's probably... Uh, Will we hear, is here with us. Uh, can we... Will, can you hear us? Yeah, we'll provide some questions on something is quite said. Yeah, hey, hey, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me up. Yes, sir. Uh, can you just tell us about on-chain data? It seems you're the expert here. Yeah, sure. And I just want to say what's up, Cred. Um, I think Cred did a really good job. At, what's up, man? I think Cred did a really good job at kind of articulating, um, you know, how how on chain can be actionable. Like in the short term, um, you know, you're subject to like mislabeling of wallets and stuff. So like, you know, trying to look at oh, there's a huge inflow or outflow from an exchange, and then you know, deciding how to you know trade based off of that, and like. You know, very short-term time frames. I, I just find that, like Cred said, very noisy and um, just not very actionable or useful. But you know, like like Cred said, um, you know, over the, the medium to long term, I see that's where um, on-chain kind of has the most uh, relevance or, or predictive power. Um, I think you know when you get out to kind of you know what, what's going to happen over the next month or so. Um, I think that's where some of these metrics can can uh, give you this kind of like underlying um, understanding about market structure. And then you can look at things like um, TA, obviously, or like, you know, whatever order book analysis to kind of like get that precision precision entry, right? But I think um, on-chain can, can be best used for identifying these like broader trends um, in, in like just market uh, participant behavior, right? Because basically what you're doing is you're, you're separating all the different mark participants on the blockchain into different cohorts, and then you're trying to, you know, compare them to, to come to different conclusions based off their activity. So, yeah, like in, in the very short term, you, you can get a lot of mixed signals from that. So I suggest like people, if you if you are looking into it, stay away from, you know, those like hourly time frame kind of thing. Thank you very much, Will, for clearing that up for us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And it's also like Kurt said, I mean, it's, it's so new. Um, like a lot of the stuff I have now, I didn't even have three months ago. Like, you know, I was um, admittedly uh, bullish when we were up in like 50, 60 K based off of some things. But um, then, you know, then we, we started to see some, some trends change at last minute before we started moving down. But I think a lot of people just remember that um, a lot of on-chain analysts, um, myself and, um, you know, Willie Wu, of course, was, I don't think like I had quite the, I guess, uh, following that I did now back then. So I think a lot of people point the finger at Willie Wu, but you know, it's like, you can only see the the data, you know, in the moment. Right. So like, if you start to see all of a sudden coins come on exchanges, I mean, you can, you can change your uh, outlook just like in TA. It's just, you know, you, you can only make use of the information you have in the moment. So like, you know, obviously a lot of it's probabilities and you can only say, okay, you know, this has been the broader trend over, several weeks and you know it's in i i think it's you know broadly about just following these these trends over several weeks and stuff like that which you know of course can can change quickly like we saw in you know mid uh in mid-may but um yeah overall i mean it's, it's just evolving really fast like i said a lot of the stuff i i have now i didn't even have a couple months ago and most of the stuff we had a few months ago when i first got into it didn't exist two three years ago so i, I think like 
I barely got past my last math class. And once you start having like MIT kind of minds come into the space, and I, I think it's just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, like the you know more actionable signals that you'll be able to get out of it. So, so Will, um, just just to bring you back to to the on-chain data um, issue, um, the, the kinds of data that we see being churned out, or the analysis we see being churned out by firms like Chainalysis, how um, credible would you say um, um, they are, and what's the level of integrity of the data that they're working with? Would you have an idea? Yeah, sure. That, that's a really good question. Um, I think like the difference between Chainalysis and like Glassnode, which is the data provider that I mainly use, or there's like Coinmetrics, which I know a lot of like U.S. hedge funds use, and there's also CryptoQuant. Um, I think the big difference is like Chainalysis is more looking into um, more like surveillance kind of information, whereas Glassnode is just purely trying to find like investment signals. So like I don't look at any specific wallets, or like I don't look at, for example you know, some big whale or something. And I'm like following that his movements. I just look at in aggregate, you know, what are all whales doing? So like a chain analysis can give you more, um, you know, information that is kind of crossing into that privacy, uh, you know, spectrum where I think a glass node does a very good job at kind of trying to not cross the, the ethos of, you know, crypto in, in the sense of like, you know, maintaining privacy and things like that. So I, I would say like, that's, that's the difference between the two. So it, it makes sense for a retailer like me to um, be putting money on such firms as Sentiment um, to utilize their service um, to inform, to better inform my trade options, yes? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, and maybe, maybe you know, you're not, you think on-chain is, you know, somewhat accurate and you're not going to like live and die by it like me, right? So, you know, it, it, at the very least, I think it's just something that you kind of add into your tool bag. And this is kind of what Craig was saying is it's just like another indicator, right? And it's another form of analysis that you use with other ones, right? Like I, I look at on-chain. I also do, you know, somewhat of my own TA. And also I follow Craig very closely for that. But, you know, I think it's like any other tool, you know, when it's best used with multiple things. And then, you know, if you have confluence in um, TA and on-chain, you know, and you get that kind of synergy between the two, I think, the signal is probably um, you can probably give more weight to that. Like this guy, John Wick in the audience, um, he had been talking about this volatility squeeze that he had been following. And at the same time I had been talking about um, anybody who follows me know I post like, like a lot about this whole like supply shock thing, which has been like kind of developing over the last couple of weeks. And so like having that synergy, what, which it seemed like between that volatility squeeze that was forming and, um, in the on-chain data, I you know I, I I saw something interesting there. Like I think if, if if you can get that confluence amongst both, it just strengthens the signal even more. So, so something I'd like to ask to both Craig and Will is this: Is there a correlation between hash rate and BTC price? Like if we see hash rate pick up again, do you think BTC price is go, is going to be reflective in BTC price going up, or there is no correlation? Don't take it well. No, I'll add yeah. my trading yeah. bit after. Yeah, I, I think like it sometimes one leads the other and then vice versa. Um, I think recently you've seen um, hash lead price because you, you saw all these miners that moved offline and, you know, from China that, you know, they were migrating. And so they had to sell some of their Bitcoin, which you saw on chain. They were, you know, a moving coins, you know, to exchanges, but also the, the minor balances were getting reduced. So, um, 
you know, like I think sometimes you see hash like when when you have this abrupt movement of of hash like we saw from China, then they have to sell some bitcoins to to cover the movement, you know, um, to to move all those machines. Like that's a lot of money to move all that stuff, so they have to sell some bitcoin to be able to do that. Um, but then there are you know like in the bear market, um, you have this you have this lag between you know the new machines coming on. Well, so like you know we in 2017, if you look at the chart, you know, between the hash rate and, and price, um, you know, throughout the main bull phase, um, I, you know, I guess you, you had people starting to order machines, you know, as price went up and there's a delay because it takes time for those machines to get shipped out. So um, a lot of those machines start getting plugged in when you go into the bear and then at the same time price is going down um, and, and you have difficulty kind of like this noose around the whole thing, um, difficulties adjusting and then eventually you get this minor capitulation um, where all the inefficient miners are moved off the network, and then you you know the, the only the strongest ones are left. So you get this compression in um, some of these on-chain metrics like hash ribbons, which look at uh, different moving averages of hash, um, and then you can kind of spot these capitulation and then recovery zones for miners. Um, and then also you can look at um, Willie Wu has the, this something called the the difficulty ribbon. So it's it's very similar. It's like these moving averages. Um, of the difficulty and it's tracking that same thing you have this you know in, in, in the middle of the bear you have this final capitulation um, the only miners that are left are the really efficient ones and then um, you can move uh, into the having and then obviously you know the having cuts in half and then everybody knows that whole spiel so i think i think long story short like there, there are certain times where hash leads price and um, there's certain times where price leads hash i think it just depends on the situation it's a little bit nuanced yeah i think that's pretty reasonable especially in this case where hash nuked because you have bearish regs which force aggressive de-risking from a massive market that they're kind of the same if that makes sense like hash doesn't just nuke by itself um there were clearly like really onerous um regulations which led to very urgent de-risking so they kind of complement each other more than anything i haven't done any studies on medium or longer term trends uh it's just in this case uh, very kind of jurisdiction specific yeah it, and i just wanted to like throw in here too i think over time um like the the impact of miners is going to be much less so like if you just obviously um look at you know issuance over time to miners goes down so you know their their selling pressure in that sense goes down but also like over time, like exchanges, um, you know, they're they're selling bitcoins from from their fee that they're taking from every single transaction. So that selling pressure and you know, full blown bull market is much larger than that from miners every day from the issuance they get. Um, and then also, I think you're going to start to see, you know, like the ETF fees take a take a bigger role in in terms of like the the market structure, where like you have this for selling coming from the fee from from uh, you know the, the ETFs you know that aren't around yet you have like the one in uh, Canada but they take a very minimal fee and and plus they they don't have like this super large amount of Bitcoin like grayscale or something but I suspect you know whenever you do have an ETF um, you know in the in the United States you're gonna start to see this um, you know other dynamic of, of forced sell pressure come from that fee that will be larger than the miner selling okay great yeah thanks very much guys um, it's a really great response to that. So I'll let someone else ask a different question. Yeah, I, I think I have a question for both Craig and Will. Um, what's the impact of the uh, London Ethereum hard fork on ETH um, Ethereum price? I mean, there's been a lot of charges. People like 
talking about it, we will see a significant um, uh, action or impact on uh, Ethereum's price. Uh, yes, I think we've already seen it. That's why it went to four and a half thousand in the first place, in my opinion, at least. Um, I feel like, like my view is, at this point, it's mostly priced in. Uh, the only way in which it wouldn't be priced in would be if there's like a decent amount of on-chain activity for Ethereum, and therefore that results in a more, more bigger burn and a bigger deflationary effect. So that might have like a second order slash delayed effect, kind of like you have with Bitcoin halvings. It's not a perfect analogy, but, you know, the day itself um, doesn't really mean a lot. But then later and over time, uh, the impact becomes more significant and it's more of a trend thing than a day of the event pump. Um, if you look at ETH narratives during its rally, especially the tail end, when Bitcoin was just consolidating at 50k and ETH whatever doubled or you had that period of outperformance in ETH BTC. A lot of that narrative was driven by like flippening plus EIP 1559 plus DeFi and it was like basically the kitchen sink. Um, so in my opinion, by the time you actually, that, that narrative was already played out to a large extent uh, in the short term uh, in the charts and that's how ETH got so high in the first place. Um, I, I, I'm not personally sold on the argument that, you know, hasn't been priced in yet and magically like today, tomorrow, um, price is going to moon. I think if it does, it'll be unrelated to EIP. I think if EIP is already going to have a positive impact, you either have to look back as to how high we got in the first place, or you have to look forward to see what the magnitude of the burn and how deflationary it's actually going to be, if that makes any sense. So is that a session or will agree it? Sorry, what's that? No, I was asking if will agree to that what you just said does it have a different opinion um i was gonna actually ask cred because um i i kind of stay with bitcoin i mean i'm not like one of the maxis who's gonna like cuss you out for having another coin i just like choose to solely focus on bitcoin because i see it kind of does like the most definite thing at least in the sense of like a, a store value but i i just don't know enough about um the eip so like, can you just explain, um, like what was the hype around it? Just like, I, I know like a lot of people were, um, I probably sound like a complete noob right now. I just, I just, am not like knowledgeable about that at all. And I see there's a couple like Bitcoin people. So I'm sure they have no, no idea what the hell we're talking about either. So if you could just like give like a quick rundown, I guess, about like what that does for ETH, anybody. I would love to accept basically imposter syndrome. I'm not, I haven't read the technicals enough to give like an off the riff explanation of 1559 um i could probably like get by but so you said it burns tokens to i'm just thinking from like just a like supply demand standpoint like i'm not technical either but i'm just you're saying it they burn tokens so like obviously that would just reduce the available supply right is that kind of like the frame of thinking there i think it's supposed to normalize um fees essentially uh, but it it depends on the degree of on-chain activity. So it's, you're supposed to like it's supposed to enable clear pricing on like a base transaction fee, which goes to miners. Um, and then there's like an optional tip that comes with it. Um, but really, when it comes to is it gonna, basically the deflationary aspect is contingent on the amount of on-chain activity. If there isn't that much on-chain activity, then that 
you know, corresponds with a less deflationary impact if I had to just pull stuff out of my ass. Again, I'm by no means super comfortable uh, with the te technicals. The smart people I talk to have basically ex tried to explain to me uh, that if there's a lot of on-chain activity on ETH come 1559, uh, bigger burns, larger deflationary impact. If, if it's a bit of a dud on the network, then that impact is less. Again, by no means my <laughs> sort of comfort zone. No, no, no. That that makes sense. So like, it it's almost becomes this kind of like uh, feedback loop where like, price goes higher. You know, theoretically, on chain activity goes higher. So therefore, the burns go higher. That sounds reasonable, but I'm sure someone has a much better understanding. <laughs> okay, I I need to dumb down anyway. So, yeah, something I would like to ask, Craig. Last summer we had the huge DeFi run. Like DeFi tokens just went up in exponential numbers. Then this year we've had maybe somewhat of two NFT runs, like earlier in the year and just last month, basically, we've seen like AXS and these other tokens with the whole play-to-earn narrative. We just see NFT go up. And I've seen Suzu call for DeFi season like a few times this year, and nothing is happening with DeFi. So my question will actually be, is DeFi dead? What's, what's going on? With DeFi, is it because of the regulatory risk and uncertainty, or what exactly is going on with DeFi tokens? There's probably some, like the, the regulatory risk probably has something to do with it. I think it's broadly more indicative of just altcoin appetite. Um, you've got like a Bitcoin-led recovery, and then you've also got a very strong performance of ETH relative to Bitcoin recently. If you kind of chart DeFi against ETH, it's just looked quite rough for a long time. So then the question becomes, why would I hold a riskier asset with maybe a larger chance of onerous regulation affecting my ownership and so on and so forth, uh, if I can just own ETH in the first place? Um, so I think it's it's a few things. Uh, altcoin appetite, uh, with the exceptions that you mentioned, generally not being super high. Um, the market was like at a very key inflection point where, you know, if 30K breaks down, we're all fucked and people didn't want to be holding altcoins um, for that as well. And generally, the market, I think a, a really good time to trade altcoins is when you're somewhat confident in the higher time frame trend in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And it basically trickles down. You get a flow down effect where, you know, the wealth accrued in Bitcoin that, you know, goes sideways but still looks decent, trickles down to ETH, and then it's a question of how far out on the risk curve uh, do you go. And I just feel like, understandably, with where the market was on a relative basis and, the you know, a lot of downside considerations coming into the market, um, people were worried or managing their exposure to the majors, Bitcoin and ETH, uh, as opposed to punting hunting altcoins but for yeah for DeFi specifically regulatory overhang probably has something to do with it uh, and just underperformance relative to ETH itself um, which has its own catalysts you know with NFTs and EIP etc uh, just makes it a, a less attractive play okay thanks Craig anyone else have a question should yeah, yeah. for me I'm done with questions I do um, I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask the most obvious question for a lot of I, I myself included, um, you guys. What, Craig? What do you have to say for for those people who who got in into the space who bought coins at their all time high during the formal season? Some lost money, some lost more money. Um, what what's the hope 
what's 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 the thing that could make them say, hey, don't give up on this thing. Just I'm going. I I just want to have your take on that because as it as a March between February and March, a lot of people got into this space. A lot of people got into um these main coins, but way higher than what they are now. Um, what do you what do you have to tell them? Yeah. Um. Sure, that's a good question. I don't think I'm a hope merchant, probably the, not, not the best person uh, for that specifically. <laughs> what I will say is uh, it's important to separate the kind of investment you made and looking at the percentage terms, etc., from what you can actually learn from it. Because, you know, if I, 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 you know, in terms of giving hope, I mean, who knows, maybe, maybe the coin, I don't know what coins you bought. Uh, a lot of coins die and a lot of them go to zero, and even if there's a new surge in the market, many of them don't recover, or don't recover as well on a relative basis. So giving reassurances there is kind of disingenuous, especially given how previous cycles have worked out. What I will say is, um, over a long enough time span, the survival rate of crypto bears is like zero, right? Uh, if If you stick around, if you learn, if you network, and you internalize if you're top buying behavior, you normally come out of it at the other end uh, in one piece. Some people have more expensive tuition lessons than others. They pay more to, for that learning experience by buying the top and maybe just their coins never come back. Um, but if you're in it for the right reasons uh, and you can be an adult about it and you know, not write off the loss per se, but be mature enough to confront it, learn from it, and don't let that put you away from crypto. I think over a long enough time horizon, you'll be fine. But that's at the same time considering that those investments could go to zero and the market doesn't owe you shit. So the best you can do is learn from it and don't be put off crypto as a whole just because you had an individually bad experience would be would be my angle. Yeah, um, amazing one, Craig. Yeah, so um, just taking from what you said, um, we've been having this debate about um, NFTs and DeFi. And for me personally, I'm more of a DeFi person. And for me, I've been saying that NFTs, I feel like NFTs are a bubble, but um, Groovy stands against that. Um, but in your own personal opinion, where do you stand as regards um, NFTs? Are you in for it just for the trading or do you look at it as a long-term hold or something that you feel is going to have a future? I literally own zero NFTs. I'm a complete, like, you know, caveman when it comes to this part of crypto. I'm going to speak to G Money this Thursday on Technical Roundup to literally learn the the basics and stuff like that. Uh, On the bubble side of things generally, um, I will say two things. One is a lot of NFT holders and traders are just like super rich ETH whales for whom the USD value just means nothing at this point. And it's about the art and the collections and, you know, their gallery and so on. So ascribing like normal risk appetite to that part of the market may not be fully reasonable. Um, And the second point about NFTs is basically when you, when people who aren't exposed to the asset start calling it a bubble, it's usually got at least another 2x to go (laughs) before it corrects. That's like generally a good, good rule of thumb I like to follow. If those with no skin in the game start calling bubble, it's probably keep gonna, it's probably gonna keep riffing. Um, so again, pretty pretty limited insights there as to whether um, whether it's a bubble or not. I imagine just like a lot of crypto stuff, men, much of it will 
deflates or value will kind of accrue in a more concentrated way. A typical way, typical um, symptom of this behavior is when you see a bunch of copycats as opposed to real innovation. So you have crypto punks on ETH, that's the real shit. And then you have bunks on the Binance smart chain and then Solana punks. And that's when you know you're in like bubbly slash shitty territory when it's just cheap knockoffs trying to capture some of the uh, pre-existing value. Um, but yeah, I'm going to speak to someone smart on Thursday. So, you know, that's going to come out on Friday. That'll be a good listen. Um, generally speaking, I think it's just quite a different part of the crypto market and people who aren't as concerned with like outright trading or USD value, etc. Um, sometimes they just really like the JPEGs and I don't want to bet against that. Cool. Cool stuff. So quickly, um, Fred, um, so um, I, I am an ardent disciple of, of the Cardano network and I'm fully looking forward to um, the completion of the Alonzo hard fork. Virtually everyone is excited about the fact that that would um, bring Cardano on stream um, with the cross-chain um, stuff and all of that. Um, however, the London hard fork is happening tomorrow. And everyone is apprehensive. Why is that? Um, I don't know where that apprehension uh, comes from. I'm, I'm not kind of smart enough to speak on the technicals. I thought on the ropes and test net, things looked fine, which is why the, the hard fork's going ahead. I haven't seen any kind of red flags or um, any, I don't know, incongruencies being pointed out. So I'm, I'm probably not the best person to answer about those concerns. Um, on the Cardano angle, uh, I'm sure our great-great-grandchildren will appreciate when smart contracts finally go live. That'll be a really good day. Thank you very much, Craig. Thank you very much for that. Like, this guy would just not stop talking about Cardano. Like, okay, that, that, leads me, that leads me to my next question, right? <laughs> that leads me to my next question. So, last year, you know, we have this whole narrative about crypto where you have Bitcoin, then you have ETH. It just goes down in the classification of altcoin, sheetcoin, everything. So personally, I thought that there were certain coins that were blue chips. Like, for example, you hear blue chip DeFi or blue chip NFT and all of that. Then when we had the big nuke from 64K to 50K, then nuke down to 40 and to 30K, I started to re to basically think about my bias, is there really a blue chip, blue chip NFT or blue chip De DeFi or everything is just vaporware shitcoin? Uh, what are your I thoughts? I don't see on enough that? good evidence to suggest that there are like meaningful blue chips. The correlations with Bitcoin are just too tight, especially when the market starts moving quickly. It seems that collateral is just collateral, right? If you need to sell whatever the fuck you need to sell to not get liquidated on Bitcoin, you're going to do it. It doesn't matter if it's got a test net, main net, bullshit net, phishing net, like you're going to sell it uh, to keep your large Bitcoin position um, or to, to be sufficiently collateralized for that position. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think the onus is on the people arguing for decoupling, decorrelation, dispersion, whatever, to make the case. Because as you pointed out, um, Stuff looked like it was decoupling when it came to the upside, which is outperformance in a bull market. But that was just like a kind of final breath when Bitcoin had already topped before it all came crashing down and actually crashed harder than Bitcoin did. Um, so, yeah, a lot of like beginners in the market, they're like, oh, you know, why is my coin crashing? Because it has this like, you know, 
roadmap website Q&A bullshit thing. And then you look at Bitcoin, it's down 5%. It's like your, your project just doesn't it doesn't have the necessary network effect or whatever uh, to decouple from the market in the way you want it to. Um, so long answer to your short question is yes, for the time being, I think if you start building any especially high time frame trend or like secular trend theses without considering Bitcoin, uh, you'll probably get hit in the face. Thank you very much. Uh, um, probably last I question have, before you can leave, if you want to leave. Um, um, okay. Craig, um, first of all, I want to shout out to um, Mr. Manasi, Knight of Niger Delta. He's here with us. I don't know if he wants to say something. He's one of the oldest guys who have been in this in the crypto space in Nigeria. He was, he's been here way back. I just want to give him a shout out. Um, I have a question. Um, smart contract summit starts this week, tomorrow, I believe. Um, what's 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 your take on, on oracles like Chainlink and the rest? And what 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 will be the impact of this summit in the space? Um, because there'll be a lot of talks on this, and I just wanted to have your opinion on this. Uh, sure. Again, not hugely qualified, um, but I feel like Link has a ton of kind of precedent and network effects when it comes to the Oracle space. So if you think, you know, if you're bullish DeFi and think Oracles in their current form will continue to play a big role, uh, I, th I, th I think Chainlink is where at least my attention will be diverted to be. Again, I could be a complete idiot missing out on some technical implications, but from, from an eye test, that's what makes sense to me. And also bear in mind, a lot of people come up with some really wacky ways to trade this. So they'll say, for example, oh, I'm really bullish Chainlink because oracles are important. And then they'll think they missed out on Chainlink and they go long every other shitty oracle, which has no usage, adoption, whatever. And that tends to be a bit of a terrible trade in crypto. You saw the same with Axies, right? AXS. Everyone's like, oh yeah, gaming blockchain. I'm so bullish Axies. And then they start looking for any type of gaming long other than Axies uh, because they think they're late. And if, if, you, if you consider that at its face value, it's like the stupidest thing ever, right? I'm so bullish AXS, I'm going to long everything except AXS. It's, it's, it's just ludicrous. Um, so I think if, if you develop a strong thesis with a strong uh, kind of market leader, you pretty much bet on the market leader. I, I don't have enough of a technical understanding of oracles to know what the competition's like. Um, but, you know, if you've got a thesis which leans that way, I, I would look towards the top of it and just bet on expansion of existing, you know, adoption, network effects, whatever, as opposed to say, well, I'm late to this, but maybe it'll get taken over by whatever. It's, it's always a much more uh, marginal bet. Also, bear in mind, Link is a particularly interesting one because um, it was the only coin that went up in like the two, three year altcoin bear market. And then it so, so when, when the whole market was shit, Link was literally the one coin going up. And then when DeFi popped off uh, and later in the altcoin, altcoin cycle, uh, Link underperformed many other coins. So this is a bit of a tricky one in terms of positioning, where it just seems to be a bit of an outlier when it comes to secular trends. So just, just something to bear in mind. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Uh, one last question. And if you want to leave, you can leave because we've had over 70 yeah. minutes of your time. So you yeah, said yeah. you joined... Um, I'll tell you, yeah. okay. Don't worry. You joined Bitcoin twenty seventeen, and you started trading and all that. So in hindsight, if you know the things you know now, what would you have done differently in twenty seventeen? Um, yeah, good question. I'll obviously, buy more, but that's not very helpful. Not you know, whatever. We all say that. Uh, I would say it would have it would have helped to take more risk 
or understand risk better. And by that, I mean that whole risk curve discussion, like, um, you know, where should my focus be? Because I learned from really good established traders. I was from the very beginning, I was like, oh, you know, one to 5% risk per trade, Bitcoin and Ethereum, the liquid stuff, and always put a stop loss, that type of stuff. Uh, but my trading capital was so low, whereas in reality, I should have been making like 10, 20% risk bets uh, on really high conviction plays with a clear edge and being much more kind of clinical in execution in the in, in the more appropriate uh, part of crypto, like mid caps, low caps, and so on and so forth. So I guess if, if I could go back, I would just be not not less not kind of less risk averse necessarily but kind of direct my focus to a part of crypto which better suited um, my risk appetite uh, at the time i played it super safe as if i had like a bunch of many many millions to protect and do like the one two percent risk on a few percentage moves in reality i was kind of a broke uni student so um should have gone balls to the wall <laughs> yeah that's it um yeah last question from me at least sure and i think you you wrote an article in 2018 i mean you stated your your favorite um technical indicators so this is bringing it back to t you mentioned uh the ichimoku cloud rsi and volume has that changed um sort of has uh, i don't use indicators in the current iteration of my trading system and it's been a few years that that's been the case i think all of those tools are still cool uh, but bear in mind, when I was kind of learning them and writing about them, the market was like super trendy or it just came out of a super trend in like 2017 where it went up only. I literally couldn't learn how to use horizontal levels in 2017 market because there weren't any. <laughs> it was just going up, right? So it's it's quite unique market conditions at the time. Um, I, I still think those tools are cool, especially like Ichimoku and stuff. For It's, it's very versatile because it gives you trend following signals, but then it also gives you mean reversion levels. Uh, what I just found over time was that my cloud, the cloud levels I was getting uh, were the established from pretty straightforward horizontal structures. And when it came to high time frame trend signals, uh, I was getting them from price and from market structure much earlier than I was getting them from Ichimoku. So it kind of became uh, obsolete as my trading system developed. As for whatever the RSI EMA stuff, I mean, for the EMA, same thing applies uh, for the RSI is just like any other uh, oscillator. Um, if you know how to use it, you can come up with some pretty good setups, usually in the form of divergence in the appropriate context, being the most widespread and generally popular one. But it's the same thing. If you don't know how to use it, it'll probably may do you more harm than good. Like, oh, it's overbought, so it has to go down. Well, you know, in a, in a strong trend, RSI being overbought can actually just mean it's a strong trend, right? Um, so... That's kind of my answer to indicators. Cloud used it because it was good for trend, gave you levels. Then basically gaining a better understanding of price gave me the same levels and market structure told me about trend shifts earlier. So it became obsolete. Still a cool visualization though. Um, and RSI, just like any other kind of oscillator or thing measuring momentum. If you know how to use it, great. You can bake a couple of really good setups based on divs. If you don't know how to use it, you'll you'll have a rough time uh, trading counter trend just based on overbought, oversold, whatever. Probably not the way to do it. All right. So I'm getting this. You're, you're no longer using indicators and you basically press, uh, you predicate your entries 
on price action only. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I'll use price charts and I'll use futures data to give me some context as to who's doing what, how aggressively, and how much of an, how what results are they getting for their efforts. But yeah, when it comes to identification and execution specifically, it's just a chart nowadays, unfortunately, or fortunately. Yeah, sweet. Thank you. Yeah, that was the last question for me. So, awesome. like Kobe uh, said, of taking a lot of your time, and we really do thank you. Oh, this is fun. Here. I appreciate I mean, the invite and for you guys hosting as well. Hope I hope I wasn't totally useless and answered a few of your questions. Sorry about the tech stuff. I'm not the best <laughs> fundamentals guy, but I'll try to you know <laughs> share share what I do now. Cool. Well, we appreciate you coming. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you too. Best. Well, I hope. Yeah, we, thank we, you. We get to have some other time. Yeah, yeah. I'd love yeah, to. Yeah, for everyone here, yeah, I I have some. I mean, everyone else. I mean, there are other accounts here. Yeah. When I was reading the news about the SEC today, there were a lot of uh, Americans complaining about the fact that they might not be able to like um, put funds into their crypto exchanges through their banks anymore. I mean, for us as Nigerians. This has kind of been our default mode. I mean, even from the beginning of the bull run, we've not been able to like use our banks to put funds. So we just use pair to pair. So that might be something you guys want to look into. If that it does go there, if the regulation does go there, but you can't um you can't put money into your exchanges anymore. So you might use pair to pair. One of my uh the other guys here, one of the other speakers here, Emeka. We both have uh, a peer-to-peer decentralized exchange. So that might be something you guys want to look into as far as um, being able to continue to trade crypto goes, even if you can't um, deposit your banks anymore. This brings me to um, um, a question. I'm sorry, Craig. Um, Binance recently have faced a lot of, what I call them, attacks or um, regulatory um um, pushbacks we saw in the in the UK, um, we saw you know other places like um, um, so. M- what I want to ask is, um, will decentralized exchanges be a huge thing? Because we see most of these big exchanges being targeted by governments, being um, pushed by governments. Will decentralized exchanges be something huge in? in Maybe the next decade, um, and also, what do you have to say about um, Binance and what what they're going through now, especially in the EU and the, in the UK? Um, yeah, sure, uh, I can take this. Um, yeah, I'll take this, then I'll jump off if you if you guys don't mind. So, first point. Fine, fine. Thank you. Uh, on on the on the topic of Binance, my personal speculation is that a lot of the uh, regulatory action hasn't been Binance specific, but it's more the fact that it's the biggest crypto exchange by volume and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's it's more the case of, you know, going into the prison lunchroom and punching the biggest guy in the face more so than it is Binance specific infractions because they're by no means unique in just offering derivatives, high leverage, all of that type of stuff. So I really think it's more a product of Binance being number one by market share, volume and all of that type of stuff rather than them being so much worse than everyone else. Um, As for the question regarding DEXs and so on, I think this links to the first point. Um, No one's trying to, like, stop you from holding Bitcoin. No one's really trying to stop spot trading. Um, The regulatory action is specifically aimed at derivatives, which are more complex, higher-risk products, which 
most people don't know how to use, shouldn't use, and so on and so forth. That's really where much of the regulatory crackdown has been focused at, not just on crypto trading, but specifically on the high leverage, complex financial instruments. So as a result, I don't think it's as much a case of uh, decentralized exchanges, where if you're going to build a thesis, you'll find a trade. I think it's actually decentralized derivatives um, will be the interesting angle. So if you know Binance reduced its leverage from 100 to 20, FTX did as well, um, FCA cracking down on derivatives, so on and so forth. Uh, I think it's less of just a pure DEX trade and more of a decentralized derivatives trade, um, in my mind at least. And that's the interesting one. And you know, there's Perp Protocol and a few others. Um, you know, Serum, the whole Solana ecosystem. I think that's an interesting one to look out for because that flow is gonna so is gonna go somewhere. Um, the DGen flow or the IP restricted flow, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so if you want to build a general thesis of regulatory crackdown on derivatives and where is it going to go, I think decentralized derivatives is where you look to see um, that that transition. Uh, and that's all for me, guys. I uh, hope hope I was helpful. It was really nice to chat with all of you. I'd love oh, to do it again okay, sometime. Thank you so and much. Have a good night, guys. I'll see you in a bit. Good night, Craig. Thank you so yeah, much. You too, man. Thank you so much, Craig. Craig. So, uh, Craig is gone. We still got Will. Oh, Will just left. So, I guess uh, that's it. That's it for night for tonight. Say anyone else? Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just going to well, thank everyone for being here. I mean, I mean, I know a lot of you came on the account of Craig, but we'll do this every Monday night. We did it uh, Wednesday today because um, Craig is here, and this was the time was available, but. Every Monday night we do this at 10 p.m. So jump in for any of our other um, episodes. We're hoping to get more people like Cred, so you guys can learn a lot from here. So yeah, thank you for being here. To everyone, shout out to everyone, and until next time, checking out from Madrid, Spain. Good night. Cheers, guys. <laughs>